Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. I love being a dad. I love being a dad. Part of the responsibility of being a dad is correcting your children, right, when they do wrong. Um, my wife is working two full days uh, a week, 12-hour shifts, and so, you know, it may not sound a lot, because I know many of you work full-time, but when you're a mom, and you're a church planner's wife, which is like a second job, and then you do that, it's, she's, she's feeling it. But with that being said, I'm with the kids for 12 hours um, on Tuesday, and also, more like 14 on Tuesday, and also on Friday, and so... Um, Emerson was walking around today, and she was being super loud. She was, like, yelling and, and just being crazy. And I said, that's what happens when you leave her with Daddy for two full days a week, and she's not around Mommy. She takes on Daddy's personality. So one of the responsibilities that our children have, well, not Emerson, Kaysen, is that he has to pick up his room. And so uh, we, we try to get him to make his bed, and we're trying to work with him on that. And he's actually in the service today um, sucking on candy. I wonder how that's going to work out a little bit later on. Thank you, Aunt Donna, for that. Appreciate it. Uh, but I'm just kidding. He's sitting next to you. So. Um, so, so with him, if he does not clean up his room, then he gets obviously corrected for that. Emerson does not have that kind of responsibility yet. If Emerson was to walk out of a room and she didn't pick up her clothes, I'm not going to correct her on that. Why? Because the level of punishment matches the level of accountability or rule criteria that each child has. This morning we find ourselves in this book of Romans... Many of you know that we've been here all year. We will continue to be here all year. For a quick catch-up, for those that have not been here, the book of Romans is written by the Apostle Paul in the Church of Rome for the purpose of providing this doctrinal implications of the gospel. Last week, uh, Paul spent, well, before we get there, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through uh, chapter 3, verse 30, he addresses the subject of sin in order for mankind to help understand their implication or their need for the gospel. And so he spends time being able to address that. The Apostle Paul makes it very clear that it does not matter about your background, your race, your religion, your creed. Uh, It doesn't matter about who you are. If you're not a genuine Christian, then you will receive the judgment of God. Last week, we focused on Paul's statements found in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. Within this particular section, Paul shifts his focus from those that were grossly immoral in Romans chapter 1 to those that were religious moralists in Romans chapter 2. If you imagine with me, if you were to read Romans chapter 1, and the Jews and the moral Gentiles that were sitting there in the audience, and they're hearing what Paul has to say about those that are grossly immoral in Romans chapter 1, you imagine with me for a moment, they're probably sitting there thinking, yes, Paul, absolutely, those are terrible, terrible people. Well, Paul notices this feedback that he's getting from this group of religious moralists, and so he brings it home to them in Romans chapter 2 and says, listen, you're no better than they are. Yes, you may not sin the same way they sin, but if you do not have a genuine relationship with Christ, in God's eyes, you are a sinner just like they are. And so the Apostle Paul brings it home to them in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, by letting them know that your religion and your morality does nothing for you as far as restoring your relationship with God. In Romans chapter 2, what we're going to look at here this morning in verses 12 through 16, is a continuation of Paul's proclamation in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 
through 11. There is uncertainty as to whom Paul is speaking to in Romans chapter 2, verses 1 through 16. Some commentators believe that Paul was speaking to religious, moral Gentiles as he continues to address the Gentiles in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 2, uh, 16. Others believe that Paul was speaking specifically to Jews. But here's the facts. It doesn't matter who Paul was speaking to, whether it be the Jews or the Gentiles that were moral, the truth is still the same. Your religion and your morality does nothing for you in getting you into heaven and restoring a relationship with God. As we observed last week, Romans chapter 2 is all focused on the religious moralists. Paul wants to make it very clear that religion does no, nothing to get you into heaven. Works can never restore your relationship with God. And so if you could take your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 2 this morning, we're going to continue with this study here of what Paul says in Romans chapter 2. Well, in a few moments, we'll specifically look at verses 12 through 16. Paul shows God as an impartial judge in Romans chapter 2, verse 6. Uh, if you do not have a Bible, by the way, go ahead and raise your hand. We'll give you one. If you do not have one at home, that's our gift to you. We've got some ushers back there handing those out. Thank you, Zach, for that. But Paul shows God as being an impartial judge in verse 6 of chapter 2 by stating that God will render to each person according to their deeds. A person's deeds are the fruits that are produced based upon their heart or the type of heart that that person possesses. A genuine Christian will produce genuine fruit. A non-Christian will produce non-fruit. They won't produce any kind of uh, fruit or at least uh, Christ-like fruit. Beginning in verse 12, Paul expounds this thought by specifically addressing the criteria in which God judges a person. Again, all of God's judgment is reserved for non-Christians. I want to make that very clear. Christians are not judged according to their sin when they stand before God in heaven. This has already been taken care of by Christ on the cross. Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16 is written to explain how God will judge an unsaved person even when they did not have the law before them. For example, if you were to look back at Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, it says that that, that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God showed it unto them. For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse." This takes away any excuse for anyone not to accept God, whether they be in a remote village that has no churches, no access to the gospel, to those that be in this tremendous metropolis that has access to many churches. Before the eyes of God, God gives everyone an opportunity to receive Christ. And, we, and he's talking about here in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, this is general revelation. God revealing himself through creation, putting upon the heart of man that we will see here this morning, the law. But to leave it here seems to be both unclear and unfair. And so what Paul does is he takes a moment to explain this criteria in which God judges mankind in verses 12 through 16. So if you were able to, out of respect of God's word, if you could stand with me one more time before the end of this service, we're going to read Romans chapter 2, verses 12 down to verse 16. It says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. And as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but the doers of the law shall be justified. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law or a law unto themselves, which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness, and their thoughts the mean while accusing or else excusing one another. 
And the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. Last week we discussed the righteousness of God, specifically observing the impartiality of God's judgment. But to God it does not matter, as I mentioned earlier, the status of who you are. It doesn't matter. What matters is your spiritual status. As we continue this thought this morning, we're going to observe the criteria in which God judges a person. There are some that have had ample opportunity to respond to the gospel based upon the exposure of the gospel. And there are others that have had very little exposure to the gospel. But here's my question. How does the righteousness of God's judgment match to the fairness of his judgment based upon one's exposure to the gospel? The title of the message this morning is God's judgment and the law, the criteria for God's judgment. Thank you. You may be seated. If we're honest with ourselves, it's hard to accept the fact that a person who is completely immoral, a person that has killed, that has stolen, and that by the eyes of society has looked at being a completely unregenerate person, would go to the same destination forever and eternity in hell as another person over here whose morality lines up with Mother Teresa. It's hard for us as Christians to, be, to, to accept that way of thinking. But the reality is absolutely certain that if a person does not have a relationship with God, then that is where they will spend forever and eternity, and that is separated from God in hell. As Christians, we hold to verses like James chapter 2, verse 10, which states, For whosoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all. So we all know that because of our sin, which every man is totally depraved by sin, we understand that, we all deserve to go to hell, but does God judge everyone with the same level or the same degree of punishment? The first point that we must make here this morning is this. God's judgment is according to man's opportunity. God's judgment is according to man's opportunity. First off, we observe the levels of accountability. Verse 12 says, For as many as have sinned without law shall also perish without law. Within this particular context, Paul is speaking to the Gentiles, those in which the law has not been given to. It was not given to the Gentiles, it was given to the Jews. He's speaking of those that do not have the word of God in front of them, those that have not been given the law. The moral law, of course, is what God reveals to us in the Bible. That is God's special, part of God's special revelation. The last part of verse 12, it says, and as many as have sinned in the law shall be judged by the law. Within this phrase, Paul addresses the Jews and many of the Gentiles that knew God's moral law and would be held accountable at a greater knowledge or held a, at a greater accountability for their greater knowledge of the gospel. The more exposure a person has to the gospel, the more accountability a person is held to when God judges according to the law. To sin in the law, in other words, to hear the commands of God and to be presented the gospel and then respond in rejection to the gospel is a very serious offense before the eyes of God. The writer of Hebrew gives a very graphic illustration. He paints it this way in Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. He says, For it is impossible to those who are once enlightened to have tasted of the heavenly gifts and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good work of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and to put him to an open shame. 
What is that verse talking about? Let's break it down. It says here, to those who are once enlightened. In other words, those that had received instruction in biblical truth, as well as understand the implications of the truth. This is speaking of those that understand the gospel, but Paul makes it very clear. The author of Hebrews here makes it very clear. Understanding the gospel does not equal salvation. Somebody can hear the gospel all day long and understand, okay, yeah, I'm a sinner. I understand that Jesus came and he died on the cross for me. I got it. That's why we celebrate Easter. That's why we celebrate Christmas. We're celebrating the birth of our Savior and the death and resurrection of our Savior. Just because somebody understands the gospel does not mean that they are regenerated in their soul, in their spirit. Then he goes on to say here, and they were made partakers of the Holy Ghost. The author mentions that experiencing the Holy Spirit does not always lead to saving faith. If you were to go back to Acts chapter 2, verse 13, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them men at Pentecost, what were the response of those that were observing? These men are drunk with some new wine. They could see the works of the Holy Spirit upon these men but they were not responding out of salvation. They were, they were basically taking what they saw and they were trying to make a human logic out of it. So those that see the Holy Spirit or experience the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit does not equal salvation. If they shall fall away, he says in Hebrews, the Greek verb used here within this context refers to a strong stance against God epitomized by sinful behavior. This particular opposition to God's will is a sign of disbelief in Christ. In other words, those that are not genuine followers of God will fall away. I gave an example last week about the parable of the, the uh, sower, right? And how there's four different types of soil. The one particular soil in which he's speaking of here is the soil that falls upon the rocky, the rocky ground. It shoots up, but the moment the sun comes out, it scorches it. It represents those that hear the gospel. They immediately become excited about the gospel. They make a profession of Christ, but the moment that hard times come, the moment that the trials come, they walk away from the faith. It's demonstrating those that never made a genuine commitment to follow Christ. He gives another example about the soil. He talks about the soil or the seed that falls upon the thorns and how it's planted, but eventually it's choked out. It's representing those that hear the gospel, those that listen to the gospel. They're excited about the gospel, but the moment that they, they see the world and they get a taste of the world, they completely become engulfed by the world, and so therefore they walk out on Christ. It's demonstrating those that never made a genuine decision for Christ. Now we understand, James, we talked about it last week, our salvation is not um, confirmed by works. In other words, we do not receive Christ and then do good works in order to confirm our salvation. Genuine salvation will produce genuine fruit. And so those that say, I'm a follower of Christ, but they live a life that is opposite to that, if you read the whole book of 1 John, then their heart reveals who they truly are. And so the Apostle Paul addresses that here in this particular passage. And he goes on, and, and the author of Hebrews goes on and says, For it is impossible to renew them again unto repentance. The author seems to say here, by putting these phrases together, that those whom have been given so much when it comes to the gospel and still choose to reject Christ have no hope of restoration and forgiveness. At what point in our life does that occur? Well, we, we don't know that. That's between them and God. We understand that if, that if a person passes away and they've never responded for salvation, they never have that opportunity to, to go back. Once a person dies, their fate is sealed forever. 
But the Bible indicates that there are those that continuously reject, 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 reject. And eventually God just said, okay. Why does God seem to be so harsh with all of this? The reason is because those that heard the gospel rejected God with full knowledge and conscience experience. With full revelation, they rejected the truth, concluding the opposite of the truth about Christ, therefore hardening their hearts out of rebellion. Jesus gives us a real-life example of this type of apostate response in Matthew chapter 11, verses 20 through 23. In this particular portion of Scripture, Jesus spoke of those cities in which he personally ministered in, cities where he shared the gospel, revealed his power as the Son of God, and had personally shown his love for them, but they still rejected him, and this is what he has to say. Then began he to abrade the cities wherein most of his mighty works were done, because they repented not. Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I say unto you, it shall be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. And thou, Capernaum, which art exalted unto heaven, shall be brought down to hell. For if the mighty works which have been done in thee had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. Going back to Romans chapter 2, verse 12. Those that had received the gospel and reject it are held to a higher accountability than those that have never received the gospel. The greater the knowledge of God's revelation, the greater the accountability for those who reject it. As Paul continues on, he gives us a statement in verse 13 that gives this qualifying factor. This is what he says in verse 13. For not the hearers of the law are just before God, but what? The doers of the law shall be justified. The law was read in the synagogue consistently and continuously. Matter of fact, the Jews would bind the law upon their heads following the command given. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 8, it says, And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thine head, and they shall be as frontlets between thine eyes. If you've ever gone to Israel, or perhaps you've uh, seen a practicing Jew here in the United States, you may have noticed at some point a black leather box that was tied around their forehead or tied around their arm. It's called a tefillin. That contained Hebrew parchment scrolls around their head and around their arms. The Jews were very knowledgeable when it came to the law and the contents of that law, but Paul made it very clear that hearing the law is not what justifies a person. It is doing the law that justifies a person. When he uses the phrase, shall be justified, it can also be stated to declare righteous. Some of your versions may say that. It means that those that possess a genuine salvation are looked at as being sinless through the eyes of God. We understand that through the blood of Jesus Christ, those that, that respond to salvation, those that repent and believe upon Jesus Christ to be the Savior of their life, they are looked at as being righteous before the eyes of God. Paul's point in verse 13 is to clarify who is righteous. Paul wanted his listeners to understand that the hearers of the law, those that are Jews and those that are religious uh, moralists that are Gentiles, did not have a favored status before God. Instead, the impartial God will justify those who meet God's requirements. Going back to verses 6 and 7, he says, Who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them who by patience, continuance, and well-doing seek for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. But what is this doing of the law? What is this doing of the law? Romans chapter 8, verses 3 through 4 say this, For what the law could not do, Delivering sinners from its penalty or make them righteous. 
because it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son and the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteous of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So as Paul continues on describing this criteria of God's level of judgment upon a person, he makes it clear that God's level of judgment upon man is based upon the level of exposure that each person has to the gospel. My heart breaks for those that have been in church their entire life and they've heard the gospel over and over and over again, but yet they fail to ever become a genuine follower of Christ. There's going to be a greater level of accountability upon the hearts of those people than those that have never heard the gospel. But with that being said, as we continue on here, if we were to stop here, it seems that those that have no exposure to the gospel are off the hook, right? Well, Paul wants to make sure that that's absolutely clear, which brings us to our second point here this morning. Man's opportunity does not give man an excuse. Man's opportunity does not give man an excuse. People are condemned not for what they don't know, but for what they do with what they know. People are condemned not for what they don't know, but for what they do with what they know. Those who know God's written law and his law will be a judge by them. Those who have never seen a Bible still know right from wrong. They will still be judged because they did not keep the standards that their conscience dictated. God's law is written upon the heart of man. If you travel around the world, I mean, if you've been outside of the country, multiple different countries, every single country, no matter what culture you go into, they know a difference between right and wrong. Their laws may be a little bit different, but everybody within their heart knows the difference between right and wrong. Even if they've never heard the word Jesus Christ before, they know the difference between right and wrong. Paul is saying that the law was written upon the heart of mankind. We see here that man's conscience reveals the law. Look at verse 14. For when the Gentiles, which have not the law, do by nature the things contained in the law, these having not the law, are a law unto themselves. We must match this verse up going back to what I read earlier with Romans chapter 1, verses 19 through 20, saying that God will manifest himself to all men. He reveals himself through creation. Paul says in Romans 1, 19 through 20, that God reveals himself through that general revelation, but what gives mankind the thought there is that there's a God and there's a difference between a right and wrong, and that is the conscience that God gives to every man everywhere. God's law is written on man's heart, so the combination of both of these truths that we find in Romans chapter 1, as well as Romans chapter 2, verse 14, leave man without any excuse when it comes to the gospel. When Paul says in Romans 14 that these having not the law are a law unto themselves, he is speaking of the practice of some good deeds and the aversion of other evil deeds. This practice itself demonstrates an innate knowledge of God's law. Going back to verse 12, this knowledge of God's written law in the hearts of Gentiles is a witness against them on the day of judgment. If you think about it from many of you in here are all about apologetics, and I am as well. If you think about this from an apologetic standpoint, the fact that mankind knows the difference between right and wrong supports the existence of God, or at the very least, that there is a supreme being somewhere, a moral being which gives us a foundation for these morals. C.S. Lewis writes in his book, Mere Christianity, and talks about how you know, he was a staunch atheist, gives an example or gives a, basically a personal testimony of how he was saved out of that. This is how he starts off his book. 
Everyone has heard people quarreling. They say things like, how did you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove first? Give me some of your orange. I gave you some of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated and children as well as grown-ups. Now what interests me about these All these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule of fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed. If you were to take some of the most staunch atheists here in our community, we'll just focus here in Chapel Hill, and you were to place all of them in a room, and they, they, they don't believe in God, they care nothing about God, they think that God is just a fairy tale, you were to place them in the room, and you were to say, one of you in here deserves to die, this is an innocent person, they didn't do anything wrong, but they deserve to die, one of you needs to figure out who it is, and then you're all going to kill them. I guarantee you that every single atheist would not do that, because in their heart they know that killing an innocent person is wrong. Where does that come from? It doesn't come from societal rules. Other societies don't have the same rules that we do, but in the heart of every single person, they know that there's a difference between right and wrong. That is God's law that has been written upon the heart of mankind. That's what Paul is talking about here. A theologian, famous theologian, states this, there is no notion or nation so lost to every human that it does not keep within the limits of some laws, some notions of justice and rectitude as they could not otherwise distinguish between vice and virtue. Going back to this passage in Romans, Paul makes it clear that the law that was given to the Jews and the law that was written upon the heart of mankind came from God. And in order to have a moral law, then you must have a moral law giver. The thought that killing an innocent life is wrong and has been hardwired into every human being That is part of the law that was written upon the heart of man. Tim Keller says this. For evolutionary purposes, hostility to all people outside of one's group should be widely considered moral and right behavior. Yet today we believe that sacrificing time, money, emotion, and even life, especially for someone not of our kind or tribe, is right. Many of you that have been following the news have seen just the the crazy um, fight that's been going on between the conservatives and the liberals. I guarantee you, as nasty as that fight gets between those two, they would not stoop to the level of killing each other. It may look that way at times, but they would not stoop to that level. Why? Because in their hearts, they know. Whether they're Democratic or whether they're Republican, Libertarian, Independent, whatever, they all know at the core together that killing is wrong. It goes to this core of mankind, this law that's been written upon the heart of man. Look at verse 15. Which show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience also bearing witness and their thoughts, the mean while excusing or accusing or else excusing one another. When Paul says written in their hearts, he is implying that there's an author that had to do the writing, which is God. But here's the thing we must remember. The conscience is the mechanism that God has designed to act as the warning light that produces guilt when it is violated. The law which the Gentiles had was not in code like the law that was given to the Jews, but in conscience. Well, we must remember one thing. 
even though the conscience was given to us by God to reveal the law to those that were not, did not receive the law, because of sin, our conscience is still tainted. As John Phillips writes in his commentary, our conscience is meant to be a goad, not a guide. So, for those of you that know Jiminy Cricket, he was wrong when he says, always let your conscience be your guide. If that was, and I'm sorry to disappoint, but if that was true and our conscience was supposed to be our guide and not necessarily our goad, then we would not need the Word of God. The Word of God is our guide. And as Christians, we are commanded to renew our mind on a daily basis. And the renewing of our mind, it, it, it renews our conscience as we put on this new man so that when we are faced with a circumstance, because of us immersing ourselves in the word of God and what he says here, our conscience is sensitive to sin and sensitive to the will of God. Going back to Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 21, it talks about how those that turned God into an idol, it says here, they became vain in their imaginations and their foolish heart was darkened. John Phillips also gives this interesting story that explains this phenomenon between the conscience here. It is said that when John Huss was burned at the stake, a poor widow came bearing a bundle of wood. She requested that the officials put the bundle of wood on the pile as close as possible to the martyr. She was a stranger to him, so John Huss asked the woman if he had ever done anything to her for her to hate him so much. She said that John Huss had never personally injured her. Moreover, although wood was scarce and expensive, she was very poor as she pinched and saved to buy that bundle of wood for a purpose. He was a heretic, she said, and it was a good work for her to give a bundle of wood to have him burned. The conscience said to John Huss, give your body to be burned. The conscience said to the widow, give your bundle of wood to burn the martyr. So our conscience is never meant to be our guide. If it was meant to be our guide, as I said earlier, then we would not need the word of God. Someone best describes it this way. Conscience is the mental faculty by which man judges his actions and passes sentence thereon. It bears witness to the fact that man lives in a moral universe and is ultimately answerable to God. Those who have the word of God to guide their conscience are a great deal more culpable than those who, not having the advantage of the Bible to reveal them to God's will, nevertheless behave in a moral and righteous manner. So taking a bird's eye view of what we read so far, the level of God's judgment is based upon man's exposure to the gospel so that man is without excuse. But just in case Paul did not make his point clear enough to those that were religious moralists, he goes on to provide one more truth here in this section in verse 16, and that's this. Man's motivations are no secret to God. Man's motivations are no secret to God. Verse 16, in the day when God shall judge the secrets of men by Jesus Christ according to my gospel. The phrase in that day is referring to the final judgment in which God judges all unsaved mankind. In verse 5, Paul refers to it as this, the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. The final judgment of God upon unregenerate mankind, those that have never received the gospel, is known as the great white throne judgment. The great white throne judgment. This judgment is only for those that have never received Christ. As Christians, we can praise the Lord because we will not participate in the great white throne judgment. It's also referred to as the Bema Seat. I'm sorry. The Christians stand before the Lord at the judgment seat of Christ, which is also referred to the Bema Seat. This is an event where the Christians give an account for their life. 
They do not answer for their sins because their sins have already been taken care of, but they give an account of how they lived their life for Christ. So since Romans 2 is focused on the religious moralists who are not genuine believers, Romans 2.16 is talking about the final day of judgment, this great white throne judgment, which is for all those that are unsaved. If you can hold your finger here, flip with me to Revelation chapter 20 very quickly. Revelation chapter 20 verses 11 through 15 describe this great white throne judgment event. This is what John says. And I saw a great white throne in him that sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, stand before God, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, and the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books according to their works, and the sea gave them up the dead which were in it. And the death and hell delivered them up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. And the death and hell were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And whosoever was not found in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So let me just go ahead and give you a breakdown of what happens. If somebody was to die today that was not a follower of Christ, they would go to hell. That is not their final destination. The Bible goes on to say that after the millennial reign, the, the, those that are dead... Those that, that have passed away without Christ will come before him at the judgment seat. Of, I'm sorry, nope, at the great white throne judgment. They will stand before Christ. Those, those are the ones that are unsaved. Christ will judge them. God gives the authority of judging to Christ. Christ will judge them. He will pull out another book, which is called the book of life. Those that are written in the book of life are those that have received Christ. If their names are not written in the book of life, then, then the Bible says that they will be cast forever into the lake of fire where they will spend forever and eternity separated from God. That is this final judgment in which Paul is talking about here in Romans. So if you're here this morning and you're wrestling with your walk with Christ, do not base your salvation upon your morality. It's not good enough. It's not efficient enough. Matter of fact, it cheapens what Jesus has done for us on the cross. Salvation is not based upon that. But I want to take it on the flip side of that as well. You may say to yourself, I know I'm not moral. I know I've done a lot of really bad things in my life, so therefore I am not deserving of this grace that Jesus gives. And let me tell you something right now. You're right. You're not. I'm not. No one is. As we mentioned last week, no one is worthy of the grace of God. But God in his grace sent his son to die for us to make that possible for those that are completely taken captive by sin. As we close out this morning, the only way that your relationship with God will be restored is through the power of the gospel. Going back to Revelation chapter 20, this book that I referred to as the book of life this is what it says, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12. And another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged out of those things which are written in the books according to their works. But in verse 15, John adds, Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's opportunity here now to respond. Perhaps God is working in your heart and you have not responded. Do so today. Don't impose upon the grace of God.